You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, once he pops, he can't stop. <laughs> it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. That's right. I am an unstoppable popper. Popable. Popable stopper. <laughs> I'm, I'm the, the popomatic. Remember those? When you were a kid oh, playing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, playing. That was that game. It wasn't it was, sorry. It, oh, no, there was a lot of games that had those. Yeah, um, uh, not oh, Not sorry. Oh, there was, trouble. Uh, trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble was the one yes. that had that. Yeah. Because your kids are stupid, and they're going to lose the dice. So we're just going <laughs> to trap it inside this bubble. The only game you could play in a moving car because you had to put the little caps into the little holes to m- make the game work. Yep. Remember? I do. I didn't come uh, here to talk about trouble today, Bill. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I, if you're I, looking for trouble, you came to the right place, came mister. came to the right place. <laughs> yes. That would, be, that would be a great visual gag, though. Are you looking for trouble? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like you, you drew snake eyes. Oh, you drew snake eyes again. <laughs> I was thinking about my place in the universe, and this happens whenever I have one of my two least favorite ailments. The second least oh, favorite ailment I have is plantar's fasciitis. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like when you pull a tendon in your foot and you have to hobble mm-hmm. around like Captain Ahab in the first yes. act of uh, Moby Dick, staring out over the side of the boat like, I wish that the whale would come and eat the rest of me. He's walking around the boat and he's going... And now that I think about it, he might have been playing trouble. What was this fancy word that you just used? Plantar's fasciitis. Okay. I had that. I just didn't know what it was called. If I'm guessing you have the same thing I have, there is a tendon that stretches basically from your toes to your heel at the bottom of your foot, and you pulled that sucker, didn't you? And all you got to do is pull it once, and it never gets fixed. So it (laughs) will flare up like sometimes when there's big swings in weather, like we're having at the time of this recording. That can make it flare up. Stress can make it flare up. Diet can make it flare up. Pulling it when you're doing exercises can make it flare up, which is where I cause my flare up to happen. At my my home away from home, my gym, where I have been. This is an important segment now, where I have been a member for over 10 years. And I am nothing if not consistent. I go three days a week, minus days where my foot is opting for the please replace me with a scrimshaw bone carved into a foot (laughs) shape game. But I go three times a week. I go from like 4 to 5.30, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday every week. It's like clock. I'm not going to drop any names because we don't get paid for this stuff. But this is the purple and yellow place, right? No. I I stopped going there years ago. This is like I stopped going there over 10 years ago. And this was because... I went to a gym that was closer to my house that I could go to on the way home from work. So that's what I did. Okay. Uh, now, is this a franchise gym or is this like a mom and a pop place? This is a like a local chain. Okay. I think they have like three or four locations. It's nice. It's a good place. Like it's a, it's a gym gym. It's like it has more weights than the purple and yellow place. Like it uh-huh. goes up to heavier weights for the freeway dumbbells and they have. I, I have more weights than the yellow and purple place. 
So it's like a full service gym. You know, it has yeah. more than just a Smith machine. It has like squat racks and all these other stuff. It's, the reason I bring this up is is I have a certain like I'm I'm trying to think of the way to describe it physical presence, which differs from the physical presence of virtually everybody that goes to the gym that I've been going to for ten years, where they look like uh, one of three types of people: supermodels, teenagers, or giant monsters. Like like four people jammed together in some weird muscle experiment. I don't look like any of those people. Every time they walk in, you hear like, and in this corner. From parts unknown, you know, and it's where creatine gets all of its money from. Anyway, right. um, I'm talking to my mom on the phone because she's called me at the gym, which sometimes she doesn't, I mean, as long as she knows where I am. So she had some question for me. So I walked off the floor with my phone and I'm, and this, one of these giant monsters who happens to be behind the counter goes, are you new here? And I looked around and I was the only person that he could possibly have been talking to. Right. So I said, I'm not new here. And he goes, I've never seen you before. I'm like, well, maybe you're new here. Which is my <laughs> standard response. And he sort of looked at me and goes, yeah, I am. I'm the new, like, trainer. Like, well, you know. Oh, all right. <laughs> so, okay. I've had this happen to me at every gym I've ever been to. I'm, like, yeah. trainer bait. So at the gym <laughs> that I'm at now, every time they've had a new training company come through the gym, they're drawn to me like flies to a yeah. piece of rotten chicken. So I'll be, like, running yeah. on the treadmill. Look, I look like a pear with little bitty legs. <laughs> a pair that's like with the heads on top of the th- narrow part of the pair and the feet are at the a bottom poorly part. drawn penguin poorly drawn penguin yeah i look like pingu <laughs> and they come to see me and say like you know you can make great gains in general muscles and fitness and blah and inevitably i'm like yeah okay look let me show you how long i've been here and what i do blah 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 and then eventually they go away and leave me alone. So after this five-minute conversation with a guy who looks like King Kong, he shakes my hand and he's like, well, good luck. I'll see you on the floor. I'm like, okay, thanks a lot. He goes, by the way, you know, you can get free training because you're new here. And I just spent 10 minutes <laughs> explaining to him that I was not a new person in this gym. Yeah. And yet it didn't, none of it penetrated any of his like rock-like head. These are the things that you learn when you go to the gym a lot, is that people are like really into their own sort of tiny universe and it's hard sometimes even when you're engaged with them and talking about something to get any information to i've run into people that i know outside the gym at the gym and they don't know who i am like i played on your (laughs) soccer team for two years and they're like i've never seen you before i'm like i pass the ball to you every monday night between 7 30 and 9 (laughs) all right young jeff one more time what was that word that you just hit me with plantars fasciitis See, every once in a while, I'll be over there editing the podcast, and you will throw out a word at me, and I'll be like, "I," because you're an author, you're a writer, so you, you tend to talk like a writer sometimes. Are you, are you saying I make up words, Bill? I'm not saying you make up words. I'm saying that I have to look up your words because I am not a writer, and I don't talk like a writer. And I don't, it's not like I can't read, I just don't, you know? You have a much more structured vocabulary than I do, and, and that's fine. I'm um, erudite, as you say. Yeah, I'll take you back to the Halcyon days, as you like to say. <laughs> I stumbled across a word, and I was like, "Ooh, I've never heard this word before." And it's a very, very interesting. Uh, it's got, it's got a great definition to it. So this week's trivia question is: What does the word defenestration mean? Oh. You want me to tell you now, or should I wait to the end no, of the show? Oh, you, you son of an unnamed goat! You do know this word. <laughs> I do know this word. All right, no, we'll save it to the end of the show. All right. All right, so anyway, this is the week beginning September the 19th, and even though you're being a jerk, I'll let you start this week. 
September 19th, 1983. Rock band Kiss, who, you know, we've talked about a million times on the show, yep. appears on MTV for the first time without makeup. Yeah. Giving the world their first view of Gene Simmons' mug. Yeah. Kiss, you know, famously were, you know, a makeup-wearing band up until this point here, 1983. Paul Stanley had kind of like, you know, made the decision that in order to continue on as a rock band, they're going to have to fit in. And Kiss with their makeup and all that, no longer fit in. And besides that, MTV wouldn't show their videos. So yeah. I, f- I feel bad that I can't do a Paul Stanley impression because to do him going like, I feel like we ought to just take off our makeup would be a really funny impression that I know you can do. Bill. Uh, well, there's two Paul Stanleys. There's the, we're just going to take off our makeup over here. Uh, there's <laughs> the stage persona, Paul Stanley. And then there's the audio book, Paul Stanley, which is, and then I told Gene that we really need to take off the makeup. And it was a good thing that Ace and Peter were no longer in the band because those two were ugly as sin. <laughs> Thank so, you for that. So by that point in time, Ace Frehley had left the band. He was replaced by Vinnie Vincent. And Eric Carr had been in the band for a good couple of years at that point. Uh, they put out the album Lick It Up. And that was the first time that they had appeared on vinyl or on the album cover without makeup as well. And I remember my brother buying the record. He goes, boy, Ace Fraley doesn't look like I thought he would. I go, yeah, that's not Ace Fraley. <laughs> He's also like a foot and a half shorter than I thought he was going to be. <laughs> right, right. Here's the funny thing with Kiss, right, is they became kind of an also-ran for that time period where they had no makeup on. They were fighting to get out of that group of Dawkin, Rat, yeah. Quiet Riot. Like, they fell into that same grouping. Yes. They weren't distinctive anymore. Right. And then when they went back to playing with makeup, people were like... Kiss! All of like the fans who still stuck with them through that period yep. were still there, but a whole new generation were able to sort of, not glom onto, but sort of see them for what they were and what made them famous. Right. You know? It's the whole production that makes them what they are. And when they took the makeup off, I, I don't think that they lost any of their talent or their skill or their songwriting quality or any of that stuff, but they lost the spectacle. And the spectacle was an important part of who they are. Yeah, yes, I agree with you, but I, there needs to be a joke made over here because all you need to do is like look at pictures of Gene Simmons in Kiss from the years 1983 and then progress into like 1991, I think it's something like that. That guy didn't know how to not be the demon. Right. He's got, like, all this kind of, like, glam makeup on because, I mean, that's the, the boots they were trying to fill at that time. Right. But he's a big, menacing guy with menacing looks. He doesn't right. need eyeshadow. It's not a good look, Gene. It doesn't track. Yeah. Kiss went on without their makeup. The last album they officially did without makeup was called Revenge, which I will say is some of their best work. And at that point in time, Gene Simmons finally nailed down a good look for him. He had like the black long trench coat. He had like a kind of uh, like a wispy kind of like goatee. He looked like a rock star instead of somebody trying to look like a rock star. He finally settled into it and then (laughs) make it back on. Then he was like, you know, Paul, we could make a lot of money if we put the makeup back on. I'll get Peter. <laughs> I'm going to do an interview on Ant National Public Radio with Terry Gross. <laughs> yep. All right. Let's move on to the 20th. September the 20th, 2013. Grand Theft Auto becomes the fastest entertainment product to ever reach $1 billion. 
That's billion with a B. Yeah. Billion in sales. I'm pretty sure that was Grand Theft Auto 4, the one with uh, Nico uh, Bellic. Uh, I think that's. I think they're talking a franchise as a whole. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so yes, uh, 2013 was Grand Theft Auto Five, the one with Michael and Trevor and I forget the uh, Trey. I forget the other guy's name. Did you did you, did yeah, you play I, Grand Theft Auto Five? I no, I I tried though. I gave it I gave it my, the old uh, my, call, college try. My favorite part of that game is when you're playing when you're playing. It's not Trey. I can't remember his name. All of his cutscenes are like, "Yo, man, I don't think this is right. I don't think we should be doing any of these like crimes." And then the mission that you have to do is like murder all the rival drug dealers. In the alleyway, every single time to the point where it became like self-parody after 10 or 15 minutes of playing. Like, he's going to complain about having to do all these crimes, and then the mission is like to go do horrific crimes with his friend. (laughs) I played Grand Theft Auto 3. Now, the Grand Theft Auto franchise started on Nintendo, and it was kind of like overhead Mm -hmm. kind of view of the streets and all that. And I remember it, and it it wasn't great. Grand Theft Auto 3 was just this, like, sandbox but mission-driven game. It was groundbreaking. I loved it. I played Grand Theft Auto 3 a lot. And then Grand Theft Auto, the next one that came out was... Grand uh, Theft Auto, it was Vice City. Vice City, that's the one. It was kind of like, it was set in Miami. Miami. And that one frustrated me so hard that I, like, rage quit it. And then... San Andreas came out and everybody was super super excited about that one and I bought it and I I didn't like it yeah. you know I didn't like it at all so I remember going to try to trade it in at GameStop and the guy told me he goes I'll take it but I can't give you any money for it I was like really he goes dude we are so stocked with these and he points at the shelf and there was just like hundreds of them yeah. he goes I can't get rid of them yeah. we got too many as it is right. yeah uh, from my experience with that game, I didn't play it until someone gave me a copy of Grand Theft Auto 4. That's the one with Nico Bellic, the Russian gangster guy. And it's set in like New York. It's really grim and gritty. And I sat down and played with my tween-aged son. Yes. So we used to play like horrible, horrible mini games that we just invented like how many police officers can we get to run into the strip club that we firebomb? And the, we, he learned all the cheat codes and memorized all the cheat codes so that we could, you know, steal helicopters and try and have the police, get all the police in the game to chase us and see how far we could get or have the most spectacular death at the hands of the cops. Like, it was super fun. Um, I used to call it the Grand Theft Auto Parent of the Year edition. Because I let my I let my kid play it a lot. There was another franchise game at that time called Saints Row. Yeah. The way my friend described it was Grand Theft Auto was like Gran Turismo. It was a crime simulator. Yes. Where Saints Row was just an arcade game. Yeah. It was just straight up goofy and fun. I, I like the Saints Row games. Uh, better because they were, they were more fun. My my son you know? loved Saints Row because you could customize your character a lot, and you could yeah. you could do that sort of. But you need money or cheat codes and stuff to do it, and you you could only deviate from the mission for so long, and then you'd get bored. You know, you can yeah. cause mayhem until you die. You have to be in the right frame of mind to keep causing mayhem. Lucky for you, the ma- the, the the missions were mayhem uh, inspired, so that works. All right, let's move on to the twenty first, September twenty first, two thousand four. Green Day released their album American Idiot in the U.S. and it makes a strong, strong run up the charts, which in 2004 is is uh, surprising. 
Yeah. Arguably their best album since Dookie. And you can make an argument it's their best album. You, you it, definitely could. It's, it's the one that has the, the most, it holds together both because it's more of a concept record. Yeah. And it's politically timely. I've gone back and listened to it, I don't know, in the last couple of years. And it's it doesn't feel like it's dated the way some yeah. stuff that has a political edge to it is. Right. Well, I mean, the theme is timeless. Let's face it. Right. Um, yes. But like I, a lot of people gave Green Day like flack because they got popular, yeah. which is hardly their fault, you know, because they were playing that kind of three chord stuff before they got popular. Yeah. You know, like I said, it wasn't their fault. I kind of jumped off of the Green Day train after Dookie. I mean, there's a, like three or four albums in between, maybe even more. I know Nimrod's one of them and they're all fine. I just like couldn't be bothered because I was in that phase, you know, but American Idiot, when that came out, I was like, Holy hell, because that title track is really, really, really it's, catchy. It's fantastic, yeah. Yeah. So I went out and I bought the album. I was intrigued with the fact that it was a concept album because I'm a nerd and I like stuff like that. <laughs> and then there's a song on there called The Jesus of Suburbia that's nine minutes long, which really appeals to me because I like stuff like that. Yes, yes. It's the magnum opus of that record. Yeah, good yeah. tune. Uh, it's like Billy Joe Armstrong was like, I bet you... I can write a prog rock song using only three chords. <laughs> we'll just keep Trey, rearranging the order and timing yeah. of this whole thing. And Trey Cool said, I bet you a dollar you can't. And Billy Joe Armstrong cashed that dollar check. That's right. He did. Have you ever seen Green Day Live? I have never seen Green Day Live. It's, I, I regret that I, at the time that they were touring between Dookie and that record and a couple years after, I was too wrapped up in my own like universe to them when they came near me which is a shame because i'm yeah. sure it would have been a really good show i did get to see them they were part of the river rave so it was like an all-day you know festival yeah. concert thing yep. like i said i had already kind of jumped off at that point but to watch them they were fine I mean, they were actually really really good live yep and i remember yeah. them uh setting the drum set on fire <laughs> i mean they cut their teeth playing live in california so I don't think they've ever had... It's not like they added 25 people to the band or they didn't work with some crazy person like Phil Spector or anything. So they kept really to their style but expanded their skill set. I don't know. I like that. Yeah. yeah. No, they're fine. Great American band. Well, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to the 22nd. September the 22nd, 1827. Uh, get ready. Buckle up, kids. Uh, according to Mormon founder Joseph Smith... He is given a set of gold plates by the angel Moroni. Oh. Uh, yeah, Italian, I guess. <laughs> However, Smith... Entirely possible that he was, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Smith wasn't allowed to let anybody else see the plates. Oh. It sounds uh, shady, yeah. Over the next couple of years, uh, Smith used a couple of seer stones uh, that he made into glasses, also given to him by Moroni, to translate the plates into what is now known as the Book of Mormon. So the the Mormon religion basically was started on September the 22nd, 1827, by your friend of mine, Joseph Smith. Well, something with his, how shall I put this in a way that it doesn't cause strife and stress, an unusual origin story. How's that? You know, still thriving and continuing to grow even today in 2022. So 200 years, man. Yeah, yeah. My ex-girlfriend's ex-boyfriend was a Mormon, like a bad one, too, because he was also an alcoholic, and that's supposed to be a no-no in Mormon religion. But uh, after they split up, 
one of our first dates, uh, also coincidentally one of our last dates, uh, we went to see the Book of Mormon by the guys that did South Park. We went to see that musical. Oh, yeah. How, how that was that? Super funny. That's oh, a great show, yeah. And you'll learn a lot about the Mormon religion at that show. I bet you do. Yeah, I'm not a religious person. I was brought up Catholic uh, until I was about 18, I guess. And then, um, yeah, I haven't really been practicing anything since then. Religions are very, very interesting to me. And the Mormons have a lot of interesting, like, quirks, especially for something a religion that's only 200 years old. Right. I think it's interesting. I am treading lightly. I'm trying not to... Uh, Make too many jokes. Right. Be a lot easier on the world if you could find those plates, though. There, John, it'd be kind of cool. For the eyeglasses that let you read them, but be a lot easier on all of us. So. It's, it seems like the 1800s seems to be the golden age for the golden plated age. I'm gonna say this, and then I'm immediately gonna contradict myself, but I'm gonna say it anyway. It seems like in our preparing for this show yep. that the, the 1800s, the 19th century, seems to be the golden age for people being able to invent religious stuff that has staying power so like the millerites seventh-day adventists mary baker eddy and the christian scientists these guys all kinds of different you know revelatory end of the world religions all started around the 1800s and i guess it's because you know lack of tv no no radio Mm -hmm. baseball hadn't been invented yet you know what do you do with your time like it's either this or walk around and look at the sheep you know And most importantly, no cell phones to record your miracles with. Exactly. This is why we have so many clear photographs of Bigfoot now. Yep. And obviously, corpses of the Loch Ness Monster is washing ashore every day. Yep. Out there and, in Scotland because of the cell And 4K phone. pictures of those gold plates. <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to the 23rd. September 23rd. I'm, you know what? I'm going to stop right there before I say any other numbers, Bill. Because I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. It's like a trivia question. Like... You are familiar with the company Nintendo. I am. What is your first memory of Nintendo? Donkey Kong. Almost specifically okay. Donkey Kong, yeah. So Donkey Kong's around like what, 1981? 19... Yep. So if I told you that Nintendo had been around for 91 years prior to that, as a game company, what would I you say? I say Poppycock! In 1889, yep. Nintendo Copi. That's the Nintendo Company, eventually. That's what it becomes called. It's founded by a guy named Fusajiro Yamauchi. And they produce and market a playing card game called Hanafuda, which is still played in Japan today. Mm-hmm. So they were making playing cards yep. back in uh, 1889. So they were around for almost 100 years. They were around for like a little over 90 years before somebody like said, Hear me out. Italian plumbers and a big-ass monkey. <laughs> and I'm sure that the president of the company said, I think that's a good game. Let's make that. It's Donkey Kong. We'll make a game and make millions of yen. What was supposed to happen with Donkey Kong is they wanted to make a Popeye video game. And AAP, who owned the license at the time, said, no, 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 no. So the Donkey Kong game, Bluto was supposed to be at the top, throwing down barrels at Popeye as he rescued Olive Oil. Princess and, Peach was supposed to be olive oil, yeah. Yep, and all the characters just got like redesigned to be what we ended up knowing and loving as Donkey Kong, which made so much money. 
And I don't understand for the life of me how they did, how it made any money because that first level is so frustratingly hard. <laughs> that's what makes that game. That's what gives that game some longevity. I think yeah. is is the the struggle to play it. Talk about foresight, man. Uh, AAP and saying you know no, I don't want to license our very valuable and beautifully well-known property of Popeye the Sailor Man to you for this so-called, I'm making air quotes when I say this, video game thing, which is clearly a fad. Wait till you see what we do with Popeye. You know, there's like going to be restaurants called Popeyes and and then everything else. And you know what there is now for Popeye? There's like the most desolate area inside of the (laughs) amusement park in Florida at Universal Studios where there's a Popeye ride. And a Wimpy's hamburger stand, and no one knows who the hell they are. Yep. Right next door, they're building Nintendo World. Right. Uh, yeah. Ironically enough, a couple of years later, they were like, hey, still want to make that Popeye video game by any chance? And they did. They made a Popeye video game, and it wasn't nearly as good as uh, as Donkey Kong, that's for sure. And ironically enough, there's a Popeye movie, which is way better than a Donkey Kong movie. The Mario Brothers movie. All right. September the 24th, 1964. The television show The Munsters makes its debut on CBS television. I watched that show in syndication as a kid, and I loved it. That show's amazing. I loved it. I loved Fred Gwynn. I loved Vaughn DiCarlo, who was like an actress who was super famous in the 50s, and Al Lewis as Grandpa, and yep. Butch Patrick as Eddie. And who, who played Cousin Marilyn, the one normal-looking Monster. Uh, there was two different actresses that played her over the over the run of the show. Uh, neither of which I know. They're, I know. Neither of which. Yes. Well, I, uh, because of uh, the work that I do, have got to meet and run into Butch Patrick enough times that we act uh, like he actually. Oh, hi, Bill. You know. Yeah, Butch Patrick's a, a really really cool guy. He does the you know the convention circuits quite often, but he also you know did some autographs over at Spooky World, and I gave him a tour around the place. And then when I ran into him at a convention, I told him that story. He goes, oh, no, I remember you. You liked my shoes. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, he was wearing checkable advance. Yeah, Butch Patrick's a, a, a really cool guy. That's awesome. Yeah. I always thought, like, compared to, again, it's you're not comparing apples to apples, clearly. Right. The longevity of the Munsters seemed it seemed to have better legs than, like, the Adams Family did, although they were very similar in, in appearance but nowhere near the same in theme. And they were on yeah. at the same time. There's a there's an argument to be made there because the Adams Family spawned two very, very good and very popular movies in the 90s, The Adams Family and The Adams Family Values. Whereas The Munsters, any kind of revival of them hasn't done well at all. No. And as I mean, they've been a couple of different series too. Yeah. There's been a couple of series, a couple of different movies. Sometimes they regathered the entire cast, the original cast back together. You know, now a lot of them are gone, so they can't really do it now. And as of this recording, the Rob Zombie produced Munster's Netflix show or series, or I'm not sure if it's a movie or a series. It's a Um, a movie. Is it? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, produced by Rob Zombie. As of this recording, it has not come out yet. I haven't seen it. To be perfectly honest, I'm not a huge fan of Rob Zombie's work. Just with all the variables going into it, I can't see it succeeding. But who knows? I've been wrong about a bunch of stuff. I remember really enjoying the first of their feature films based on the TV show cast called Munster Go Home, Uh which I saw 
I don't know, innumerable times as a kid on Saturday afternoon rainy day movies on network television and stuff. What I think what sets that show apart and still makes it, it's timely, it exceeds the span of time by which it was made. I guess that makes it timely, right? It's, it's not tied to the era in which it appeared. There right. we go. That's the phrase I was looking for. Is that the whole sort of general gist of the show, for those of you who don't know, it's Frankenstein, Dracula's daughter, Dracula, and their like Wolfman kid, and their niece, who is normal looking, who all live in a house with a dragon, and interact just like a regular sitcom family, face the same sort of stuff that they see that you see in literally any other sitcom from the time or beyond Mm -hmm. and interact with people who are freaked out that they are monsters, like movie monsters. And the whole gist of the show is that they are just like anybody else. And people cannot get past the fact that they look like movie monsters. And that adds this other layer of complexity to the show. It was missing in a lot of other sitcoms. It was always missing in the Addams Family because the Addams Family characters were just flat out bizarre. And And in the Munsters, they weren't. They were very normal. Fred Gwynn as Herman Munster was very normal. He was a very loving father, supported his wife, took good care of his kids, was very compassionate. Like, they all worked together when they solved problems. Like, all these great aspects that got snowed under by how they looked. Yeah, we said that in the the pre-show. We were talking about, you know, all the uh, great American family sitcoms of that era that uh, Fred Gwynn as Herman Munster was probably the best sitcom father. Oh, yeah. You know? Dumb as a stump, but as a father, I mean, he took care of his problems and, yeah, and took care of business. That was a great show. All right. And let's wrap up the week on the 25th. September 25th, 1975. Pink Floyd's concept album, Wish You Were Here, hits number one in the U.S. and goes on to sell 13 million copies. I speak for myself when I say this might be the most listened to Pink Floyd album in my house. Whenever you say concept album, some people have different definitions of of different things and all that. Whenever someone says concept album, I always think that it tells a story or at least has a narrative to it. Right. Where I'm not going to call it a concept album. I'll say it's definitely thematic. Yes. You know, where all the songs kind of have a central theme to them. Mm -hmm. Um, The theme being the former member Sid Barrett and you know just everybody in the band missing him and missing working with him and they hadn't seen him at that point it was 1975 I, I think the last time they saw him was like five years he whatever he, yeah. uh, Sid Barrett left the band nobody saw or heard from him for like the longest time and while they were recording the album he kind of just like wandered in one day mm-hmm. his head was shaved and he, he just I guess he had put on some weight and he didn't like look like himself and they all just kind of stopped and they turned and looked and like oh my god there's Sid and he was like oh uh hi I just wanted to see how things were going and then he like left it was like a ghost showed up you know and that was the last time anybody saw or spoke to him you know from the band until the day died and I think they were recording what? They were recording Shine On You Crazy Diamond when that happened, right? Which is like specifically the song series in that on that record that's about him. Yes. I mean, every song is a bit about him, but Shine On You Crazy Diamond more specifically, yes. Yeah, it was that one was specifically like this, that song's about Sid Barrett. Right. He's the crazy diamond for which they speak, right? Yes. I'm going to spill my awesome guitar playing skills here. Mm-hmm. The first song I ever learned to play on guitar was Wish You Were Here. The uh-huh. only song I've ever played all the way through on the guitar is Wish You Were Here. 
Aww. the only song I can play at all on the guitar is Wish You Were Here. <laughs> and you know what song I forgot how to finish on the guitar? See if you can guess. Shine on you, crazy diamond. Wish You Were Here. So I've come right. full circle. Yeah. That was close. Right. You were close. It was a, There's only like four songs on that record, so you have, you're bound to get you had a one in four shot. Yep. I haven't listened to that album in a long time because it's like it's a time commitment for me, you know? Because yeah. I want to sit there and I want to listen to it because it's one of those kind of albums. And if I'm going to do that, then I need 45 minutes. And yeah. I don't I don't have 45 minutes, Jeff, ever. Yeah, I make 45 minutes for that for that particular album. Yeah, that's that's one I've owned on in every format except for eight track uh, since probably 1984 or 85. So. Oh, well. Excellent album. I recommend. I highly recommend. All right, let's move on to the Celebrity Birthdays. September the 19th, 1958. Erstwhile member of the Runaways. <laughs> From the halcyon days of all-girl punk rock bands. Yes. yes. Uh, Lita Ford, who went on to have a solo career of a couple of songs that I can remember. Yeah, she uh, went to a party last Saturday night. She didn't get drunk. She got in a fight. It something ain't no like big that. Thing. I think she didn't get laid is what she didn't get. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. That song still gets airplay on rock and roll radio up here in New Hampshire, by the way. Oh, yeah. Every four hours. I remember you and I used to hang out at this music venue called the Car Palace. God, I loved that place, yeah. I tried yeah. to explain that place to my kids, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it justice. The only thing I didn't love about that place was their music rotation, because they had roughly eight or nine uh, records that they could play, and it was only a matter of time before that. You know, came on. It's like I, I still get like nerve damage from that. But she's still touring and golfing in between touring. And the reason I know that she's still touring is because uh, this guy Marty O'Brien, somebody I used to share a practice space with, and I could probably call my friend and not get corrected about it. Uh, Marty O'Brien is the touring bass player for Lita Ford's band. Yep. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. All that practice in the practice space paid off then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he he has to play "Kiss Me Deadly." God knows how many times a year, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he looks at the set list and he goes like, Ugh. again? Yeah, what, what song do they close with there, Jeff? Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly, what song do they close All right, moving on. September 20th, 1948. Uh, we've got a twofer here. Okay. Chuck and John Pinozo, the bass player and the drummer, respectively, for the band Sticks, who generally don't get any love when people talk about Sticks. People can remember J.Y. Young, Tommy Shaw, Dennis DeYoung, Operatic Music, Domo Origato, Mr. Roboto, <laughs> Rock in the Paradise, Too Much Time on My Hands, Space yeah. Aliens in a song about boats, but they never remember the, the two guys who are like the bedrock rhythm section of the band. You get Tommy Shaw, James Young, and Dennis DeYoung in this like two-on-one handicap tag team match. Well, Chuck and John Pananzo are just like sitting in the back and they're like, just let us know when you're going to stop playing again. And, you know, one, two, three, four, we'll, we'll stop playing. Yeah. Uh, both of them, you know, kind of quiet and non-assuming. Uh, John Pananzo, actually, he passed away young. He passed away in 1996. Yeah. I heard it was complications from, you know, alcohol abuse. He definitely had, he had a drummer's death, as they say. Yeah. I think he'd probably develop a drinking problem having to work with Dennis DeYoung, too. So. <laughs> No, we're going to have a conversation about robots in this part of the song, so there's no drums, and he just goes, okay. He opens a beer. Yeah, where's the tequila? <laughs> exactly. All right, moving on to September the 21st, 1950. Don't worry, 
Bill Murray. Yes. <laughs> one of the five Murray brothers are, you know, obviously the most famous one. Probably best known for his role in Ghostbusters and Caddyshack and Groundhog Day. Or as, you know, as I would say, probably best known for Meatballs, Where the Buffalo Row. <laughs> and that movie he was in with Melissa McCarthy two years ago that I never watched. Probably best known for Lost in Translation. <laughs> probably, probably best known for doing the voice of Garfield in Garfield 2, The <laughs> Return of Lasagna or whatever. Probably best known for that movie he did about a clown with Gina Davis or whatever the hell that was. Oh, that was Quick Change. That was a great movie. <laughs> I, when I was in Chicago, went to Bill Murray's restaurant called Caddyshack's. Oh. Oh, nice. Yep. How was the steak? I had a hamburger, and it was fine. Bill Murray is one of those guys that just kind of, like, randomly shows up and does, like, karaoke at some, like, somebody's wedding. Dude, he randomly shows up in our hometown. Yeah. Yeah, I heard He shows that. up, and people post things like, I'm standing in, like, me Antonio's taco shack in the south end of New Bedford, and Bill Murray just ordered two tacos in front yeah, of me. Yeah. And, you know? Or I'm at Cafe Mimo drinking Saj- Sagra's beer, and Bill Murray just ordered a Bifana sandwich and some potatoes. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, he's uh, he's he shows up. Uh, I guess he comes in his boat. Oh, all right. That that may, I was like, why would he be in our hometown? But if he comes on on his boat, I mean, we do have a very large seaport over here, so that that tracks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next up, September twenty second, nineteen fifty eight. Uh, another quarter of the Runaways. Miss Joan Jett. First guitar player for the for the Runaways. Who is still currently touring and playing the same like nine song set that she's been playing for the last 247 years. Yeah. <laughs> Who is still touring. I saw her in 2017, I think. Uh-huh. Uh with the reconstituted Boston before the like the last of the original members shuffled off his mortal coil. She was great. She sounds just like she does on the radio. I was I was so far back in TD Bank North Garden that yeah. I was almost outside. Like yeah. I was I was against the brick at the back wall. And we she don't even like need a, to see your ticket. Yeah, she, she, yeah, she looked like a gummy bear with a guitar uh, toy st- stuck to it. It was she was yeah. teeny tiny. Good show, uh, she does a lot of covers, like almost exclusively covers. Yeah, I think um, I hate myself for loving you. And Bad Reputation are like the only two songs I can think of that she's done that weren't covers. Yeah, I didn't even realize I Love Rock and Roll was a cover until I heard it in a trivia thing somewhere. And I was like, get out of town. Yeah. And it's a it's a cover. Yeah. yeah. I do love her cover of Crimson and Clover. That's the rare occasional cover song that is I think is better than the original. And I like the original, but I really like her version of it. Uh, I got another example coming up, but we'll save that. September the 23rd, 1959, I cannot get my head around the fact that Jason Alexander, who you would know from Seinfeld, George Costanza from Seinfeld, is actually one year younger than Joan Jett. Get your head around that. I can't. He doesn't even tour. He'd never never open for Boston. No. Jason Alexander is just living off that sweet, sweet Mick DLT commercial money, I'm sure. Oh, is that where you're going to go that he, he's probably best known for? Yeah. Jason Alexander, probably best known for the commercials he did for McDonald's in the 80s for their failed McDLT sandwich. That was my favorite sandwich. I'm just going to put that out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's my favorite Jason Alexander commercial for sure. Uh, it's fun to see him like with hair. Go to YouTube and j- type in Jason Alexander DLT and uh, get back to me. 
He's been in some movies too, but I can't remember. He was in a couple of like family-friendly films when Seinfeld wrapped, but I haven't seen him do too much since then. He was in a very good movie that I've been meaning to bring to your house. Remind me the next time I come over, called The Last Supper. He's got a small role in The Last Supper. Yep. I think we brought up The Last Supper last week. Or the I week think before. we did. Yeah. Yeah. So next time you come to my house, Bill, bring that movie. Oh, I will. They, I've just reminded you. Oh, thanks. Now, now it lives forever in the uh, in the ether. <laughs> now, right. now you can write to us at uh, at Instagram or on Facebook and ask if Bill actually brought the movie to yeah. my house. Somebody please uh, email us at Twibley on Facebook or Instagram and remind me to bring that movie to Jeff's house. All right, moving on to the twenty fourth, September twenty fourth, eighteen eighty three. September twenty fourth, eighteen eighty three. Frank C. Mars is born. He's the founder of Mars Candy. He's the inventor of my favorite candy bar, the Mars Bar. And my other favorite candy bar, the Milky Way. Yep. Oh, my God. 1883, Bill. Oh, yeah. Those candy bars have been around so long. Like, I can't get my head around. Like, the, the, the Milky Way that you just mentioned? Yeah. That's been, that's been around for almost 100 years. God, I mean, not the same. God. And it tastes like everything. It's so good. It's like eating chocolate-covered well, butter. It's not the same one, Jeff. They make new ones. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand. But, I mean, it, the, the recipe, I, I don't think the recipe for these things changes. Uh, and I don't know how he managed to, to make something that tastes like chocolate-covered butter, but he did. It's, yeah. it's my favorite, favorite candy. I'll, like, push you out of the way to get one of those. I robbed Halloween trick-or-treaters for those things. Whenever I was a paper boy, I would always go into the Cumberland Farms where I would pick up my papers, my stack of papers, and I would always go inside and buy a Coca-Cola and a Milky Way bar. That was like my snack and drink for the uh, for passing the papers. Absolutely love uh, Milky Way bars. I, I used to work as a grown-up adult in a training company, <laughs> and I used to go and buy a king-size Milky Way bar because I had the money to do it, yep. and two bottles of Coke, and drink those two bottles of Coke while I sat on the curb and ate a Milky Way bar before smoking half a pack of cigarettes on break. Yep. And generally when I did that, I had so much sugar and caffeine in me, I saw an angel who offered me some gold plates and special glasses that I could use to read them. But you thought it was an angel, but it turns out it was a trainer at the gym. It was just an Italian guy. His name was Macaroni. It was crazy. All right, and then wrapping up the birthdays on September the 25th, 1944, the guy who in the 80s and 90s needed more dating advice than anybody else, <laughs> Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. Uh, my God. Any, those were like a weird genre of movies. I guess it was in the 90s where it was just like, unbelievably venomous women in movies. And Michael Douglas was always their boyfriend. He had the worst relationship movies ever. He was definitely in a lot of them. You got to start on TV, I think, and on the show The Streets of San Francisco, which I remember being a thing, but I don't remember anything about it because I think that was like grown-up TV when I was a wee little lad of a boy. This isn't a cartoon. This isn't the $6 million man. Get this off my TV, yeah. But I, I remember, like, he had this period in the 80s where he was he was like Harrison Ford, man. He did Jewel of the Nile and... Uh, Romancing the Stone, which Romancing was the first the Stone, movie. Like the first film of those, of those two. Romancing the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, Black Rain. He's got a wide brush. He doesn't just do, like, one genre of movie, even though it felt like it in the 90s. Because he also did Falling Down. Yeah. Which uh, was a, a great example of a Joel Schumacher movie. Yeah. Um, I'm still Anti, mad. Anti-hero. I'm still mad about the whole short sleeve shirt and the tie, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another time. <laughs> yes, and then uh, uh, most recently, people are going to know him as Hank Pym 
Hank Prim in the Ant-Man movies. Yes, that's right. Yep. That's right. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, in the comic books, Hank Prim is Ant-Man, but they in the, in the uh, MCU, they passed that torch over to Paul Rudd, but they still had Hank Prim as a character, So, right. and that's played by Michael Douglas, and that's cool. Hopefully, he, he, like, he runs the clock like his dad did. I think his dad, Kirk Douglas, lives to be 150 years old. Yeah, he, he lived forever. Yeah, and uh, Michael Douglas, 1944. So, you want to do that? He's still got 30 years of movies in him, that guy. <laughs> At least, yeah. Hey, you know who else was born in 1944? Uh, oh. The worst song ever. Hey, Jeff. So uh, we tend to take turns going back and forth with the worst song ever. So sometimes I pick, sometimes you pick. Uh, this week, we actually got a listener submission. I love it. Yep. Uh, a listener named Damien. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Uh, from Massachusetts, emailed the show, and he was talking about a song that he described as The Cringe. Um, and yeah, and this is a song called Lightning Strikes by Klaus Nomi. Oh. Yeah, and I wrote him back. I was like, oh, Jeff and I definitely know who Klaus Nomi is. We both love Klaus Nomi. Um, <laughs> let's play a clip and see what Damien's talking about here, and then, uh, then we'll talk about Klaus. To learn the makings of a man. Listen to me, baby. It's time to settle down. Am I asking too much for you to stick around? Every boy wants a girl. He can musicians artists that we talk about like the shags or dd king or whatever that you kind of put on just to look around the room to see who's gonna say what the hell are you doing where does what is this music and where is it coming from yeah and how fast can we shut it off i like i actually do like this song i like that klaus is a he's like an operatic he's like an opera singer like he's a tenor I can't remember the specific specific term yeah the the term the term for it was like tenor like extra tenor or something like that because he tends to fall into the vocal range which is usually for sopranos which are the female singers he was super into opera yeah yep. and got his start in the east village in new york during the weird scene years yes. <laughs> the late 1980s <laughs> uh, late 1970s and early 1980s yeah yeah, there was this um, almost like an open mic night, but it was more geared towards performance, like performance art, than it was towards like slam poetry or whatever the hell. Well, the, I mean, given the, the year it was, it was like 1979, 1980. The New Wave Vaudeville. And they had all sorts of weird performers and stuff like that. Like people would show up with like rubber guitars and stuff. Yeah. And, and a lot of lip syncing and stuff. And then Klaus comes on stage and he's got a backing track. And he's singing this beautiful opera, and it just stopped the room. And everybody's like looking, like, because they can't believe this voice is coming out of this man. Right. He'd go on and like build on that whole 
that sort of shock, the audience shock by his voice coming out of who he is, yep. like what he looks like, and started to build like the character of Klaus Nomi, the performer. Right. So I don't know how to describe his look. Otherworldly, uh, science fiction-y, almost avant-garde, like 1920s German cinema. I can't pin it down, yeah, but it's, it's odd. It's- it's a mixture. It's like a mime robot is the closest I can come to it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My job is to pull the rope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we can't mime on the show because it's audio. I have to, yeah. you know, I have to lead into the robot part. So at any rate, Klaus Nomi, you mentioned science fiction, which is interesting because that's where he got his name from. The Nomi is an anagram for Omni, which was a science and science fiction magazine that was popular at the time. It was. They were a good paying market, too, back then. <laughs> so he also sort of fell in with David Bowie and was a backup singer when David Bowie appeared on Saturday Night Live. I don't know that he toured with him, but I know that he played with him more than just then. Yep. David Bowie saw Klaus Nomi perform and, like, called them up, and it was like, hello, I'm David Bowie. And, <laughs> and he said, yeah, my name is Klaus Nomi. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've watched uh, over the course of the day, I've watched uh, a few interviews with Klaus for as weird and bizarre as his performances and his onstage persona is. He does all of his interviews straight. Yep. He does them all uh, like out of makeup, out of character, just non-assuming. Um, and he's very like professional. Like, you would think, looking at this guy, that he's going to come, like, this guy's a weirdo. But no, he comes across very straight and very normal. Uh, one of the more interesting things I found out about him is when he first moved to New York, before he started doing music, he actually was making money as a pastry chef. And that's a weird freaking thing to be really good at, especially when you're self-taught like he was. Because, like, you can be a cook and you can, you know experiment and do your own thing and you know oh my secret and you know, my secret recipe and stuff like that but pastry chef is like you're either right or you're wrong kind of a thing you know it's a it's an art form it is definitely an art form it's precision baking it's like yes. the super bowl of baking so to be yeah it doesn't surprise me that there's that much precision in the other aspects of his life he actually used to pay the like the people that would like come and play with him at shows and stuff like that he would pay them with with like um cakes and stuff yeah. <laughs> it must have been like, hey, uh, yeah, I know he hired us as backup dancers, and you know we were there. We did that three-hour thing, right? And uh, we never really settled on, you know, like for the you know pay for the night. Usually, we get fifty bucks each. Well, now you get the cupcake. And he's like, I've made you some beautiful Napoleons. <laughs> I, I can't pay my rent with a Napoleon, but it's very tasty. And then you take one bite flaky. out of it. You're like, no, 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 this is good. I, f- I feel like I should give you fifty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> He was gone before he even got there. Like, his first album came out in 1981. He sadly passed away at the age of 39 in 1983 of AIDS. Uh, He was actually the first celebrity, and, I mean, that's a real liberal use of the word celebrity. But he was the first, like, famous, or I I don't know how you want to say it, but famous person to pass away from AIDS. He had notoriety. I don't know that he was a celebrity yet. Right. He was he was known because he was he was like a curiosity at that point. Yeah, he would wear like clown not clown, but like very like pale white makeup. His uh lipstick would be very pointy and angular. Mm-hmm. 
And then he had this like weird receding hairline that he totally leaned into that curve and like yep. had had like these like three mohawks going on, a trihawk, if you will. He was a very stunning. That's the only that's a word I could say. A very stunning looking and sounding performer on every level. Sorry, Damien, I, I bet you were hoping we would rip this song to shreds, but is this song palatable? Is this song something that you would put on and uh, on a mixtape if you're trying to woo a girl? Not unless she's goofy. Uh, <laughs> no. Is it something you put on a playlist when you're going to have people hanging around, make conversation over food or whatever? Absolutely. Yeah. Is it something you play if you're sitting in a, a biker bar or like a bar with one of those electronic jukeboxes on the wall? Where you can buy songs from your phone and nobody knows where the songs come from. Oh only boy, if, can you ever? Yeah, only if you're on your way out the door. Yeah, nah, do it. And you just sit and watch because it doesn't say who bought the song. It just starts uh, yeah. to play it. <laughs> but nah, Klaus Nomi's an interesting guy, and like the Shags, like legendary Stardust Cowboy, like so many of the other people that we've talked about. I like the eccentricities of rock and roll. I like ridiculous BS cartoon character rock and rollers. That's what makes it fun. Right. So, rock on, I'm, Klaus Nomi, wherever yeah. you are. I went and, like like I do, I went and I listened to, ready, I'm going to use a fancy word, eponymous, uh, first album, uh, just simply called Klaus Nomi. I listened to that and, you know, Lightning Strikes is, is this, uh, like the second song of the album. The first song is just like a, like an instrumental lead in. I couldn't get through the whole album. It's weird. It's, it's a, you know, it, it goes back and forth from what could be considered pop music of its time into these like opera standards and i don't know when i'm at work trying to listen to music that's not that's not what i'm going for which is why that roger waters album see see elise i think it's called yeah that's not in my rotation (laughs) all right okay so uh before we wrap up the show i do have my very popular and always well received trivia question Ooh, good All right, so this week's trivia question was pretty simple. I brought up a word that I stupidly thought that you wouldn't know, but of course you did. Uh, Yes. A curious word that I stumbled across this week, defenestration. Yep. Well, whenever I hear that word, Bill, I just want to throw it out the window. Uh, Yep, defenestration not not just means to throw out a window. But it means to throw a body out of the out window. The window. Yep. Yeah. If you throw a plant out the window, not defenestration. I throw nope. you out the window, we got ourselves a defenestration. defenestration. Yeah. It's the rare English language word that's that sort of mimics how German phraseology and words can work, where you can combine a bunch of ideas into one word where like Spackengrubel means, <laughs> you know, the excitement of turning the pillow over to the cool side or and it's this is a word that does that. It it's it takes a concept and condenses it down into a single word. I don't even know how it condenses it because defenestration, none of those words mean throw somebody out the window. None of them. None of them uh, mean any of that stuff. So I'll have to go look the etymology of the word up and see what it's like, where it's from. All right. Uh, but that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.